to discuss and analyze social, political, economic, cultural, and international issues that confront various communities all over the country. Uh, the Doc Power Hour is supported by the Doc Bookshop. The Doc Bookshop is one of the largest African-American-owned bookstores in the South and Southwest. They have, you can visit their website at www.thedocbookshop.com um, to get books or to purchase books online. And they have a lot of events in their store. Um, they sell um, e-books, audio books, hardback, paperback. Just visit that website and you can get whatever books you need um, to fulfill your needs. Whether it's inspiration, entertainment, motivation, they have it right there on the Doc Bookshop. Now, I have an exciting show for you today. Um, we have a guest author that's coming on the show. First of all, I'd like to give a shout out to Black History Month. It's Black History Month. Black History Month was started by, initiated, and lobbied by Carter G. Woodson. And so we have had Black History 101. We started um, Doc Radio or Doc Power Hour with Black History 101 with Dr. Safisha Hill, and she talked a lot about uh, Carter G. Woodson and how he got Black History Month on the calendar, you know, as a recognized um, celebration and reflection. And so, again, he started in about 1926, which was literally um, what he saw as Negro Week. And he felt a lot of African Americans were not going to get the information they need to fulfill their destiny and their future if they didn't understand their path. So we um, continue on that path and on that journey to really educate people about what Black History Month. I, Danya Craddock, as being um, a descendant of African of, of an enslaved African, it would probably do me a lot of service if I really tell about my own history. Um, this is a very important topic and near and dear to my heart as the author that we have coming on is Richard Cahan. He is a photo historian um, and the new book that he have is River of Blood and it's quite a few interviews and photographs of formerly enslaved African and it's River of Blood and American slavery from the people who lived it. And just having this topic in this book today, I have to give, you know, recognize as your host my own experience and my own information that I received from my family, from my ancestors that's been handed down. Um, shout out to my late great aunt, Lita Davis, um, who's really shared a lot of information and imparted a lot of information and knowledge um, um, to onto me. So. And again, I would just want to go reflect a little bit as your host, a little bit about my history and background to so you can really understand why this topic today, the river of blood, the telling of ancestral stories as they experienced in slavery about 70, 75 years after the Civil War, after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, just going over their life and their reality. And again, a lot of my aunts have really shared and imparted a lot of knowledge and wisdom and you know, sometimes sometimes hurtful, but again, we have some great slave narrative that I was able to capture in my own family um, through my late, again, my late great aunt and my aunt Vera and what have you. Um, but I just want to real quick share before we really jump into um, our author, our guest today, 
about his book, River of Blood, which just really focused on the history um, and the stories of those enslaved Africans. I want to talk about, and it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's and it's kind of hard to really reflect upon, but um, my great, my great, great grandfather, if, if, if ever anybody can really figure that out, was Emmett P. Craddock. And Emmett P. Craddock died December 24th, 1898. Um, his birth was unknown, but he had, he was the um, son of Ed and Ophelia Craddock, who had several children. One of those um, children were fortunate enough to have a slave narrative written about them. Um, because during slavery, or like I said, about 75 years after Civil War, there was a, a slave never narrative I guess you would say uh, journalists went out and captured these stories and it was called a uh, freedom writers project 1936 to 1938. And I just want to share a little bit of my own um, great, great grandfather, his brother slave narrative. And then we will jump into our um, guest for the day. Um, again, we're reflecting upon black history month and everything that goes with it, you know, is, the good, the bad, the ugly, but it's, it's that truth that our the forefathers of the United States of America has said this will be a stain on the history and we will have to reckon with it from generation to generation to come. Um, but basically, my own slave narrative with my great-great-grandfather's brother, Ed Craddock from Marshall, Missouri, and it goes as such. Ed Craddock from Marshall, Missouri has a lifelong Negro citizen who was born in slavery, but was too young to remember actual slave condi conditions. He is Ed Craddock, born a few years before the Civil War, the son of slaves, owned by leading pioneer families. Craddock lived through the hard days of Reconstruction. His own father was a school building janitor in Marshall, in Marshall, Missouri, in 1975. Okay. My computer is moving a little bit, but we're going to get this. In 1975, um, or in 1970, and Ed Craddock was an apprentice under his sire. Finally, upon death of the latter, succeeding to the job, which he was held for 47 years. Years ago, he married and reared a family, and Craddock belongs to the Methodist Church, and he would describe his experience as, um, he was a second minute man, which he explains was second, uh, a second secretary, but he goes on to say that slavery was very cruel and his father, his father was very vivid. He described slavery very vividly. And he just says that one time uh, slavery did not do what his master told him. And he was flogged to, he was flogged to, you know, he was beaten very harshly. And at that particular time, slaves were saying, you know what? We have to pay attention. We have to do what we have to do because they will flog us. They will hurt us. They will rip us from our family. That's all captured in his slave narrative. Um, I, now, I would like to go ahead and share with you a little bit about the author, Rich, Richard Cahan, who is going to be with us today. Um, let me just uh, share a little bit about his background. Um, Richard Cahan is a photo historian, author, and co-publisher of City Files Press. Cahan is the author of 12 books, including 
a book about Memphis photographer Ernest Ernest Withers, uh, which is called Revolution in Black and White. He served as the picture editor of the Chicago Times. We will discuss his new book, River of Blood. Give me a second while I bring him up. I know he's patiently waiting. He's been very patient and waiting for us. Richard, are you there? I am. Hi, Danya. Hi. <laughs> I was I was trying. You know, my computer started acting up because <laughs> we don't oh. do paper no more. And so I was trying to really get down um, that slave narrative. I think I'd have the rest of it pulled up. I was trying to go off of memory. But I just want to read you my own piece in terms of what my great uncle said about slavery. He said stories told to him by his father, father was very vivid. Craddock said in, him, in an interview, one especially because of its cruelty, a slave right here in Marshall angered his master, was chained to a hemp, hemp on a cold night and left to freeze to death, which he did. My father admitted slaves had to have a pass to go places. Patrollers usually went to groups of three. If they, if they got caught off his plantation without a pass, patrollers will often flog them. Let me tell you something. I have been, you know, dialect, I think that's one thing you cover in a, in your slave narratives that you sh um, have in your book that's photographs of all the formerly enslaved Africans. And I just want you to go ahead and do an overview of that book, and we're going to dive into questions. And I did want to share my own experience. Unfortunately, I didn't get the picture of my great-great-grandfather's uh, brother, Ed Craddock, but um, I thought it was just that I share as a descendant of enslaved Africans my own narrative that we found in our family. I think that's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm actually looking at it now online, the uh, the narrative. And um, so this is your, this is your, wait, great uncle. Yeah, this that would be my father's, my grandfather's father brother. Unfortunately, my um, my grandfather's um, grandfather was murdered. Um, he was trying to get his paycheck. And it was a huge case out in Marshall, Missouri. He was trying to get his paycheck, and he was shot in the throat by the owner of the hotel uh, with a cannonball gun. And, oh yeah, it was a huge story in Marshall, Missouri. Uh, a lot of information there about um, the Craddock family that we're just trying to really piece and puzzle together. But when I seen your book, River of Blood, I closed my eyes and said, maybe, maybe just maybe there's a picture of Eric Craddock and yeah. he just didn't know and I said okay we just you know a, a lot of times I mean from what I seen that you got you were able to line up the different stories with the pictures um, that was captured right. so just go ahead and talk sure. I, I've been talking a lot sure. but just go ahead oh no no that's <laughs> fine so so the book is about a series of interviews um, that were done in the late 1930s, so more than seven decades after the end of the Civil Wars, of surviving um, um, enslaved men and women, formerly enslaved men and women, and uh, just just like your your grandfather's father's brother, um, there were the federal government set out. This was during the works. This was during the Depression, so the federal government set up the Works Progress Administration to to in a sense make jobs for unemployed Americans, and some of the jobs were for writers and 
unemployed teachers and newspaper editors and reporters. And so they went out and they interviewed more than 3,000 formerly enslaved people, uh, which is amazing. I think it was about 1% or 2% of the people that were living, which, which, uh, which uh, you know, the, all, all these people were obviously at least 70, but mo many were in their 80s and 90s. And of the 3,000, about 300 were photographed by the, by the interviewers at the end of the interview. And, and unfortunately, I haven't seen any photographs from Missouri. Um, most were just kind of by chance in Texas and Mississippi and Alabama. Um, so only one out of 10 were photographed. And this book is the accounts of 96 of those 300, so about one third. And what we found, well, we found it amazing that the process was undertaken and we, we were very moved by the stories and the eloquence of, of these formerly enslaved men and women. And when you, we, we concentrated on the, the photographs and we thought that when you pair the photographs with these eloquent words, it, it was very powerful. Um, and what, what do you, Danya, what do you think? Uh, did I you find this? You know, it it was it was astonishing. You, you know, it was a telltale, and you look at the history. And I was really shocked at all the information that I found in Texas. You know, a lot of times you, when you're dealing with slavers, you're dealing with the 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 colonies, and not so much Texas. Right. But you're looking at that that immigration, and you know, it went into Texas. And shockingly, I'm looking at these stories. I'm like, you see Fort Worth, you see Mansfield, you see all these different areas of Texas. And I'm like, it's time. I think it's 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 a little bit more. It's time for really Texas to really stand up, and you know, as good and bad as ugly, it's really tell that aspect of history. I think Texas have been really kind of hands off when it comes to it, but it's a, a very interesting history and I, I think it deserves some a spotlight uh, we does. we deal with North Carolina we deal with the Cal yeah. uh, Carolinas we deal with Virginia we deal with Alabama Georgia Mississippi and <laughs> it kind of stops with you know the seven star of Confederacy which is Texas <laughs> I agree and, and amazingly and, and this is something that I really didn't realize that that there were almost two migrations. You know, there was obviously, well, I don't know if you would call it a migration, but it was a forced migration um, across the Atlantic and mostly to the coastal states in Alabama, Mississippi, like you said. Uh, but then as the Civil War approached and as the, and as the war went on, many plantation owners forced, um, forced their, their uh, enslaved men and women to go overland to Texas because Texas was as far from... Washington D.C. and the and the United States Army was, and uh, so so many people had were forced to move twice, and they ended up in eastern Texas. Right, and we and we don't know that Texas, every disagreement, everything that happened in Texas had, and when Texas was annexed, when Texas became independent, yes. it was over slavery. It, it was, was over the case of slavery. And, right. you know, we, we, we still are working with that compilation here. But I want to say um, within those, uh, we're, we're going to jump into some of the uh, narratives, but within those narratives, you t there's 75 years, it was 75 years after the war, but not only do you document narratives, but you have, you show the plantations, the slave quarters and cabins and barns and, you know, everything that has probably, that was abandoned with that. And right. 
it and the backdrop, you know, the backdrop to these people, they look dignified, even though the clothing is, is kind of altered, of course, and rightfully so, but they stand strong. And you know, you can just see sometimes it's pain. Sometimes it's that photograph it depicts the pain and the hurt and the reflection uh, of the past. So Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it was the resilience um, on, on their faces and, and, as you say, standing straight and standing proud. I mean, these, these really are American heroes because not only did they – make it through the trauma, the horror of slavery, but then they live, you know, 70, 80, 90 years later, and they're still strong, and they're willing to talk about their stories, and they talk about it beautifully and clearly, and they've lived such hard lives. Mo most of the people that were interviewed have lived such hard lives, but now, they're still standing strong. Connect us with the enslaved African on the cover of the book, River sure. of Blood. Sure. Well, we, we ch the man in the cover of the book, his name is Richard Toller, and he was actually photographed in Cincinnati. So most of the people in the book um, were, as, as we said, most of the people in the book were, well, in Texas and in the far southern states. And uh, Richard Toller, I think, was born in Kentucky and kind of moved up to um, Cincinnati before he was photographed. And um, he's wearing something of a suit coat. Uh, but his pants are torn. Um, he's got this very dignified gray beard, and he's looking right into the camera. And uh, he's so clear in what he talks about, uh, as, as as many people were, about how difficult it was, to how 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 difficult it was to, to to be enslaved. He talks about how he was not taught to read. He was not taught how to write. Uh, that he was not taught how to carry money uh he said he's never allowed any you know to go to parties and, and and he starts his his short narrative by saying i i've never had any good times until i was free and he talks about how bad the food was he kind of gives this incredible overview of those years mm -hmm. but um but you can see how strong he is even in this picture and i think when he was the picture was taken i think he was about 90 years old Wow, that's amazing. That is truly amazing. And I want to ask, were you connected to any of these relatives? Like, do you know his descendants? Or, or has any descendants you know, claimed these the pictures? Or <laughs> What I did is I, I used Ancestry.com to find out, to find their birth records and their death records. And then I did find out the names of their children. I was not able to track one down. Uh, so you are the first descendant of a sl of a slave narrative that I've ever talked to. Wow! And wow. I, I don't, I, I really don't know if it's my fault. It could be, or it's just the fault of these are very poor people living in marginal, you know, on sharecropping and living in rural areas. And 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 I think you know many of their children. Well, obviously their children were born in the 19th century, so they're gone. And so I had no records of their grandchildren, who are also probably no longer alive, and their great-grandchildren I just didn't have records of. So, so boy, it's important to track down the descendants of, of, of every one of these pictures. And so it's really, it was really thrilling to hear that you are one of those. Yeah, I, I, 
it was very important to my aunt, um, you know, um, Aunt Lita, rest in peace, she transitioned a year ago, but it was very um, important to them that we really researched, they did a dynamic job researching. Um, and how did, she, how did she find out that he was part of the narrative during um, that research? Or um, well, I believe they visited... I can't recall everything, and I I, I got to go back and grab yeah. it myself. But um, they just started in the library. It's just information wow. that was passed down and passed down. And as they started researching uh, my grandfather who got murdered, you know, and of course right. my my um, his son was disconnected with the family because he moved off and stayed with another family after, because um, he only had one child. He was only, a, you know, he, which was my great-grandfather. And so they started connecting all these dots. And, you know, people that were talking about what happened, it was kind of like a hush-hush. We knew it happened, mm -hmm. but um, it, he just got connected to his brother. And then we just got just truly connected with that information. It just kept going back. Then the dots just started connecting just automatically. J they were just connecting. We started putting pieces to of the puzzle together. Who was Ophelia? Ophelia Craddock was owned by the Marmaduke family. And so we kind of knew. Um, we went as far as to understand that the enslaved African um, that came over were out of Kentucky. And they traveled to Marshall, Missouri, um, and it's kind of it's it's kind of when they talk about the rape and what have you, we did have a we did have that in our family. But one thing I can say is they kept that family together, which is why we were able to go back as far w as we were able to go back to the actual um, enslaved Africans that came right. over. One was you know on the soil and. He rescued one of the. He rescued his master's son, so they let him pick any wife, and he picked an African woman, and um, they had a child, and that child was raped by the master. But they kind of kept the family together, and so um, there you have Boy, it. That's, <laughs> that, that's amazing. That one of the themes I think of the book is how many families were kept together despite, you know, being sold in everyone split up in. in sales and slave auctions, uh, the stories of how important it was for people, s even during the war, there, there's another woman uh, in the book who was also from Missouri, and she was freed during the Civil War, and she went back to find her mother in, into the South. She had papers showing that she was freed, but obviously it was an incredibly dangerous thing and uh, a really brave thing to go back to the South to look for your family. Yeah, actually, you actually, when my family left, well, the ones that documented they left from Marshall, Missouri, they never were able to reconnect with their parents. Um, mm -hmm. Fortunately, you know, a lot of times, and it talks about in your book, how I think one slave was talking about how he was sold or he was given to a uh, his mistress on their wedding day. So he was within that family, but he was given away to another right. family member. And so I seen that uh, quite a bit throughout the book River of Blood where they were going to other family members. I can't remember because it's so much. I can't remember the exact story. And then there was another right. story where they uh, 
I think they pull it out of the hat, and whatever name you pull, yeah. you win with that family member. Go ahead and talk a little bit yeah. more, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, both of those are, 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 are really worthwhile stories. Uh, the, the man, John, John Fields, was the man who very dignified man in a, in a full suit, and he lived in uh, Indiana when he was interviewed, and um, he was also about, oh, let's see, he was about 90 years old when he was interviewed, and he said that um, when he was six years old, all the children were taken together because the, 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 the slave holder had died, and they were divided among uh, different family members, and he, he wrote, I can't describe the heartbreak and horror of that separation. I was only six years old, and it was the last time I ever saw my mother for longer than one night. Oh, that's just right there. Uh, it yeah. Wow. It does. And just how um, he put it, for longer than one night. For longer than yes. one night, the, his exact words. And right. that, to me, just blew my mind in, in uh, terms of how he understood that situation. It, it actually was very, you know, almost a poetic, you know, backdrop to what he was saying. Um, I, th I find that what most of these people who were interviewed, they talk in a very poetic, and I don't mean poetic in terms of rhymes or something like that, but so beautifully. Their, their, their memories of childhood is so, so um, clear, and they, um, you know, they, they, they obviously knew exactly what was going on, and they know that the problems that beset them for the rest of their lives. There's a woman who, who literally said uh, she doesn't know where she was born and she doesn't know exactly when she was born. So you can imagine what that would do to someone's identity. Wow. This I mean, this information is indispensable. If you're just now tuning in, we're on Doc Power Hour with author Richard Cahan. He is author of the book River of Blood. Um, uh, we're gonna go. We're gonna do some readings, but I, <laughs> I still want to kind of really get sure. the 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 business side of this whole project that went into place. Because I think really understanding the fullness of what the government did will help other families to say, "Hey, I got to go reclaim this information. I got to do it." So, how do you tell those family members? Because I'm hearing that. There's no descendants, you know. There's nobody really claiming these, you know, 300 pictures. Right. Well, there there has to be descendants. It's just that I I haven't been able to find them. Um, and I think people need to know that most of this information is online. Um, mm. they they may not know the first name of their ancestor, but if they start by just typing in, you know, if you typed in Craddock and 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 if you wrote wrote Craddock slave narrative collection um, y your your ancestor would come up and you you'd figure it out because you'd see you know they mentioned like you say Marshalltown right in the in the, in the interview so you know even though you won't nobody or very few people know their great great grandfather or grandmother but they certainly you know mm -hmm. they can start with their last name and that should that should help you that surname let me ask you how important do you think it is to go back and reclaim that information? Because some oh people say, I'm, you know, I, that's the past. But how important, you put this collection together, how important do you think it is people to understand, to read it, and to be able to, what is the value of having this information? Right. Well, I think it's the, the path, you know, we talk about 
worrying about the path we're going to go on, but it's also important in the path that we came on. Obviously, the path that we came on in our own lives are the most important thing, but, um, you know, I, I think, and, and I think most people think that families really do matter, and you, you want to um, get a sense of who your ancestors were, and I think that's one of the things that, that these narratives can do. Your, your ancestors was two pages long. It was actually a pretty short one. But sometimes these narratives go on for 10 or 20 pages, and you really get a sense of wow. other family members and the towns that they came from. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's going to change people's lives, but I think it does. I think our identity is essential in figuring out who we are in the world. I want to also add, um, I always go off of this quote. I think it's a very remarkable quote, and I'm going to tell you who that quote comes from. It says, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. It, I agree with you. It must it's be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Freedom is never more than one generation away. And that quote, came from Ronald Reagan in a privileged class. Really? <laughs> so Ronald Reagan's writing this in a privileged class. I have only, you know, you know, compel people to pick up this book, The River Above, because freedom is a generation away from extinction. And so I think that this collection is so important, even if it's not you cannot really connect, but it's the humanity that you see in the slaves. And this is what you put together. You bring the humanity back into enslaved Africans that have lost their language, they have lost their land, they have lost their connected connection to their family, they have lost their sense of society that they've come from. And I, and I think, and they, they bring a little of this with them as much as it was, you know, beaten or forced out of them and inability to really communicate, I think this does a lot. I uh, I want to move along because <laughs> sure. I, I sure. know I could keep you for it because we, we have some ways to go. Fortunately, uh, you know, uh, this radio show, you know, we could kind of, I could probably get a lot done <laughs> because this right. is a very well, uh, good collection. But, um, I do want to bring up a uh, 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 one of because I work with you know HBCUs and a lot of different HBCUs. Um, within the I think it was the forward, it talked about um, the slave narrative and the effort to collect short short interviews of the formerly enslaved men and women, and it also talked about historian John B. Cade and his students at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, interviewed 82 former slaves in 1925 29. And Kay revived the work in the mid-1930s at Prairie View State College in Texas, where he directed the interviews of 400 former slaves. At about the same time, sociologist Charles S. Johnson and researcher Ophelia Seattle, Egypt, at Fisk University in National, Nashville, Tennessee, tracked down and talked to 100 ex-slaves. So this, I guess the program was also given, um, you know, funding into the HBCUs, you know, right. to start collecting these short interviews. 
and I was, right. you know, can you speak a little bit about that, yeah. the goal? I, I think it just shows how visionary uh, uh, these historians were, that they knew how important it was. Obviously, this was the 1920s, so, you know, former slaves were getting quite elderly, and they weren't going to last forever. And, you know, it's funny, we, th we think about the, the Steven Spielberg project of interviewing uh, Holocaust survivors, and we thought that that was really visionary in the 80s and 90s, or I'm not sure remember exactly what year. Uh, but here they're doing this 60 years earlier and realizing that we need to save this information because because there wasn't a lot written down. There, w there, were, there were written slave narratives, but there were only, you know, I would say in the dozens. Uh, and, and so here's a chance to save the story of thousands. It's, it's, it's really so smart that they did it. And obviously they had limited budgets, but, but that's, a, you know, that's a lot of people that they interviewed. And then when the government got involved uh, and they interviewed thousands of, of people, uh, it just, you know, what, what, a, what a gift to future generations. But only if we know about it and we, you know, and, and, and with the Internet, it's all very accessible. So that's wonderful. But you have to use it, you know, to get the value of this great gift. And I do, again, we're going through this journey of your book, River of Blood. I do also want to talk about Kuja Lewis. Um, his story, again, came back to life in two, uh, 2018 in Barracoon, the story of the last, last black cargo. And in that story, um, the last Barracoon, um, actually she wrote it uh, in 1930s or what have you, but it could not get published. It could not get published because she, like you, did not want to take away the dialect, the way the enslaved Africans spoke. She thought it was miraculous, miraculous how they told and shared their story. So, um, 1920s author and anthropologist Zornia Hurston interviewed Kuja Lewis, who claimed to be the last survivor of the slave ship sent from West Africa to the United States. And he said, I want to know who you are. Hurston told Lewis, and how you came to be a slave, and to what part of Africa do you belong, and how you fared as a slave, and how you have managed as a free man. Hurston couldn't find a publisher willing to print the book on Lewis, but you have it here, the slave, his version of, uh, of his experience. Can you talk about Kojo Lewis' experience a little bit? Sure. Um, it, well, it's an amazing uh, narrative because he 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 very clearly recalled uh, his life in Africa, and he recalled his kidnapping and he recalled the the time on the ship. Um, and many of the people that were interviewed by the government later, they were a second generation. Their parents oftentimes were the generation that was kidnapped, in the generation that was kidnapped and put on a ship, and they. They recalled stories of it, but but here Cujo Lewis, uh, he was on what was considered the the last slave ship. It was kind of an illegal um, crossing in the 1850s, I think, and so it was all very fresh to him. And um, the question of dialect is is an interesting one because it's it's a little hard for people in 2020 to understand it. Um, but not too hard. It's kind of like, you know, if, if you read Huckleberry Finn in high school and at first you 
you told your high school teacher you couldn't do it, and if you if you had a good high school teacher, she or he said, just keep at it, and within a couple of days, you understood it, and not only do you understand the dialect, but it's a uh, it's a beautiful language upon itself. So um, that the, we did we did actually provide a glossary at the end back of the book, so that if you didn't if you couldn't understand a word or two, you could see it in the glossary. But 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 it becomes. It becomes pretty clear after reading a couple of the, the narratives uh, how you know, it like all language, it has a you know it, it has a kind of logic to it, and um, and it has a beauty to it. And, uh, that's 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 why we decided to publish it as it was transcribed at the time. Okay, great. Again, we're on on with Richard Cahan about River of Blood. Um, on Doc Power Hour. Doc Power Hour is a show supported by the Doc Bookshop. Please visit the Doc Bookshop at www.thedocbookshop.com. I want to move on and talk about um, how you have the book divided. Um, right. And you have the book divided into, I want to say, six parts. And I just want a high level. Uh, as we get ready to move towards some of the st- uh, stories, high level, what were some of the stories that came out of slavery and identity? What were some of the messages that came out of slavery and identity? Well, I think the the message was um, how how traumatic that must have been to to not know really um, when you were born. Uh, you, when freedom came, many many former slaves had to literally ask the the slaveholder what what their last name was, and if they couldn't figure it out, they used the owner's name, and and you know that's that's a problem. I remember being uh, a, a boy, and and Cassius Clay said that he was going to change his name because why should he have the name of of his the slaveholder, his family slaveholder, and it certainly makes sense that it's. It's not their name, and um, and I, I understand now more why people would just reject their their family name that was given to them, you know, during the last days of slavery. I um, want. Oh, go ahead. Um, no, no, you go ahead. Uh, I want to just jump in and share my just personal experience. Um, I share with you a lot about my maternal lineage, this my mother's side, but on my paternal lineage, um, I remember my grandmother telling me that. Her gra- her her great grandfather. I can't get it all into context. When he was going to, like you said, talk about give himself a name, a last name, he said he would dare not give himself the name of his owner because he, how much he despised him, how much he mm-hmm. hated him. So, <laughs> you know, in in the wit, I, I I laugh now because I think of Zora Neale Hurston and how she interviewed some of these um, enslaved Africans and their wit and he said I looked on a street sign and that's how oh. I came up with the name Irwin so he didn't that's he, great. he said he had to take a name but he would not take the name of um, the master it said he was vicious he was a vicious m- man so there you have it he um, so I got the Craddock on one side and I got the Irwins on another and, and you know we just kind of continue uh, on both sides of the family my pater- 
maternal and maternal believe that it is very important to really understand your history so i really hope people would get energized that don't know and really take this information to heart so we let's continue the journey because that was part sure. one of slavery and identity mm. and part two oh did you want to add something uh no 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 uh um yeah, you, you were saying part two is uh, day to it day. really talks about day to day what the conditions were like, what it was like on um, uh, on a plantation, and um, I I thought it was you know I've I've read a lot about slavery in my life, but I thought that having firsthand accounts makes all the difference in the world to understand and 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 let this sink in. Uh, they they talked about getting up when you know before sunrise when they heard the horns so they would prepare and start heading to the fields and they talked about the dirt floors and the benches and the 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 saddest part i thought was that several people talked about food being put in troughs you know uh, uh which i which i found so sad that you know as i as as i as i learned this information um i i someone said asked me how it affected me, and I would say I had to grieve. I had to grieve for the people who were in the book, and I had to grieve for this country, which you know prides itself as a great democracy. And obviously, it was anything but that in those days. Um, they talk about hunger, and they talk about like Richard Toller, you know, not not being able to read and write. Um, it was it was a uh, horrific experience, and and it wasn't as if we chose outliers stories that were unusual. We, you know, many people talked about the, the troughs and the hunger, you know, so this wasn't like we were looking for the, the most sensational in any way. Right. Okay, and, and you say part three, trauma that lasts forever. Yeah, which of course was, well, I, I won't say it was the worst part of slavery because it was all terrible, but, uh, we, we, you know, we know a little bit about this, the beatings and the overseers and the, the dogs that went out you know, hunting for people who had left the plantations and the, the scars, both physical and mental scars. Um, uh, but I was amazed at the lack of vengeance, total lack of vengeance by these these storytellers. Um, they they certainly were the, they were their stories were filled with candor and detail, but it wasn't as if they had hatred in their heart. Many of them had, you know, they, you know, they, they, they went on from life. These are people that are survivors. They, they talked about how they didn't look back very oftenly, often. Um, but I thought that even, you know, this is not a book. I hope, I hope it's not a book of violence. And it's, I, I think it's more a book about beauty and resistance and resilience. They, they, they talked a lot about the songs that they sang in the fields and the cabins and, how they prayed silently and, and, and how they, you know, resistance didn't have to mean just running away. It could mean like one, one person, his name was Ben Horry, recalls watching his mother being beaten and, and, and standing with his father just unable to lift a hand. Uh, that is resistance. It's like they're not going to be, they're not going to be beaten down in, in many ways, you know, and, and, and others recalled how their loved ones did not, Acknowledge pain during beatings because they did not want uh, to, you know, they, they did not want to be the victim. And that was amazing. Yeah, I'm hoping I could find that story where uh, one of the, when we, when I start reading, one of the enslaved Africans said he wouldn't holler at everybody but just 
looking at him and he didn't holler and then finally he said um you know forgive me or you know i it's it's too right. painful yes right that's an amazing story uh his brother's name was sunday okay and um uh and it's exactly that he just refused to um i'm, I'm looking for it as we as we talk uh, okay this one yeah okay we can continue going down um the, the sure. over the contents of the book and then I, th I think you and I are just going to piggyback and forth and kind of just read a different passage okay. and so you have um, part four war and freedom right and, and the end of the civil war didn't always mean the end of slavery uh, um, many uh, especially in Texas which was far kind of from the news of the civil war tried to keep um, their their slaves uh, working the fields, working mm -hmm. the fields for that that uh, season, and then trying you know then thinking about working the fields the next season, and um, how people learned of freedom is kind of a beautiful story, and how when one once one enslaved woman learned of freedom, she ran into the fields and told everybody that they were free. Um, I thought that was very very beautiful, but being free was. You know, not something that was that easy. Uh, somebody said, you know, we didn't know how to be free. You know, we, we thought it was a place. We thought it was a time. And, and you know, even though they were no longer slaves, um, freedom really didn't come for many people. Well, for some, there's, you know, there's still a lack of freedom. So it's, it's not something like somebody turned on a, a switch and said, you're free now. Right. And we journey along. Again, we're, if you're just tuning in, we're on um, Doc Power Hour with Richard Cahan. He's the author of River of Blood. And we're just going journey through what the contents of the book. And we have um, part five, The Pain of Reconstruction. Yeah, how difficult it was. They talk about uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan. They talk about uh, one man uh, said that one day he was kind of... Uh, lazily in the street, not working. He was picked up for vagrancy laws and sent to a chain gang. Um, there were such challenges. Uh, uh, the former slaves were such easy prey uh, after the war. Um, and then they had to really start, as I said, start figuring out what freedom meant. You know, the problem was is that they weren't really equipped because they weren't allowed to read or write to make it easily in, in their new world. And so many stayed on the plantation. They were put, paid pittance. Some of them became sharecroppers and they went into debt. And, um, you know, freedom was a very costly thing. But, but they all said, every one of them said, you know, freedom brings problems. Now all of a sudden I've, you know, I, I've got to make a living. But, it, but there wasn't anyone that said that they'd rather be slaves. Right. I remember af after reading Barracoon that Cujo, he said, man, I just really wanted to go back to Africa, but I just can never get enough money to go back. So I created my own Africa, and that's what became Africa Town in Alabama. Um, yeah. And one of the final pieces of the book, River of Blood, is Once a Slave. Yeah, and here's, here's the moment where these people who are, you know, in their 70s and 80s, um, they look back and they start, you know, thinking about this 
place in their lives. Uh, one woman, Isabella Boy, said, I like, like to be free, but I wasn't used to it, and it was hard to know exactly what to do. Um, you know, and uh, everyone talked about how slavery times, they actually, some had more food than they did, you know, after becoming a slave, because these are very poor people. But, but they all say, I'd rather, much rather be free than be a slave. Wow. This was a hard life. You can see it on their faces, and you can see it in the shacks in the background, and, and you know how proud they they are. But what a difficult lives that they that they continue to live. I thank you a lot for going over the book and giving such detail and being so vivid about the information in the book. I do want to go in and read a couple of uh, sure. narratives, and I I, I think maybe. I, uh, I don't know if you're comfortable with this. Maybe we'll take turns and just, you know, we'll do about three each and go back to back. And I'll, you know, I'll I'll let the, the sure. you know spirit world guide me to that story. And you pick a story, I'll pick a story, and we'll just right. <laughs> until we get you three go, three each. Three you go first. You I'll go first. first. Okay. I, I'm I'm not as as good, but um, I will definitely go first and uh kind of share um again i'm just letting the book guide me and i'm just picking the pages of some of the females so i'll just go after uh quite a few of the females um one mary kane she writes her narrative um in those days there were men who made a business of buying up negroes at auction sales and shipping them down to new orleans to be sold to owners of cotton and sugar cane plantation, just as men today buy and ship cattle. These men were called nigger traders, and they would ship whole boatloads at a time, buying them up two or three here, two or three there, and holding them in jail until they had a boatload. This practice gave rise to the expression, sold down the river. This was, n- this was a... Uh, uh, excerpt was by about Mary Car- Mary Crane, daughter of Violet Copper, was born into slavery in 1855 on a farm owned by Waddy Williams in LaRue County, Kentucky. Her father joined the U.S. Army after the ban against African Americans was lifted. More than 200,000 African Americans served in the U.S. Army and Navy during the Civil War. She married and raised four children she was living in Mitchell, Indiana, when interviewed. Wow. Speaking about slave auctions, there's this woman, Sarah Frances Graves, who, who sh- really displayed a little bit of humor when, when she, she's talking. She said, I was never sold. My mama was sold only once, but she was hired out many times. Yes, when a slave is allotted, somebody made a down payment and gave a mortgage for the rest, a chattel mortgage. And then she wrote, Times don't change, just the merchandise. Wow. Wow. And, and, and who was the name? That name was? Her name was Sarah, Sarah Graves. Okay. Is it my turn? <laughs> Your turn. Okay. Your turn. Okay. You know what? W- one that popped up was Mary Armstrong. I'm just, you know, I'm just picking, you oh, know, uh-huh. let spirit guide me. And this is quite a long one. I, I'm surprised, but that's where it led me. 
I stays with Miss Olivia till 63 when Mr. Will set us all free. I was about 17 year old then or more. I say I'll go and find my mama who was sold and sent to Texas. Mr. Will fixes me up two papers, one about a yard long and the other some smaller. But both was has big gold seals that he says is the seal of the state of Missouri. So I'm I got this Texas, Missouri thing. I think this yeah, is why exactly. <laughs> he gives me money and buys me a fare ticket to Texas and tells me they is still slave times down here and to put the papers in my bosom. But to do whatever the white folk tells me, even if they wants to sell me. But he said, Flirt, you gets off the block, just pull out the papers, but just hold them up to let folks see and don't let them out of your hands. And when they see them, they will have to let you alone. A man asked where I going and says to come long. And he said he takes me to uh, Mr. Charlie Crosby. They takes me to the block what they sell slaves on. I says right up like the, they tells me because I lex what Mr. Will done told me to do. And they start bidding on me. And when they cried off. And when they cried off and this Mr. Crosby comes up to get me, I just pulled out my papers and help him help him up high. And when he sees, he say, let him let me see them. But I says, you just look at the look at them from here. He squints up and said, this girl, I'm free and has papers. Mary Armstrong, daughter of Sibby and Sam Adams, who was born into slavery about 1846 on a farm owned by Polly and William Cleveland near St. Louis, Missouri. Armstrong was presented as a gift to the Cleveland's daughter, Olivia, and her husband, Will Adams, who set her free in 1863. Thousands of African-Americans roamed the South at the end of the war, searching for their families that had been split apart. All free blacks in the North and the South were required by law to carry detailed freedom papers to prove their status. Armstrong, Armstrong found her a mother near Warren, Texas, after the war. She married John Armstrong and lived in Houston. Wow. What a story. What a story. Well, do you, ha do you have time for another one? Oh, yeah. All right, so so this is Tempe Cummins, uh, and, and she talks about the end of the war. And um, this is the story that I told you a little bit about. She, she overheard slaveholders talking that the war had ended, and she remembers that her mother shouted, I'm free, I'm free. And she runs to the field against her master's will and told all the other slaves, and they quit work. Then she runs away, and in the night she slips into a big ravine near the house and have them bring me to her. Master, he come out with his gun and shot and mother at mother, but she runs down the ravine and gets away with me. So even after freedom came, she's, she's, she's being shot at. Wow. I think we got time for uh, about two more. So you'll have okay. the last one. <laughs> so okay. um, let's see. Let's okay, see I, I got George Chapman Young. Okay. I see slaves plenty times with iron bands round their ankles and a hole in their band in an iron rod fastened to a hit what it what went up the outside of the leg to the waist and, and fastened to another iron band down the waist. 
This there was to keep them from bending their legs and running away. They call it putting a, putting a stiff knee on you. And his show made him stiff. And his show made him stiff. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes hit made him sick too. Because they had them iron bands so tight around the ankle that when they tucked them off, took them off, live things was under them and, and that would give them fever, they say. Live things was under them that would give them fever. Miss was the Lord in them days. What was he doing? What, a, what, a, what an ending. Where was the Lord in those days? What was he doing? Yeah, what was the Lord in those days? What was he doing? That is the story of John Chapman Young, son of Mary Ann Chapman and Sam Young, was born into slavery in 1846 on a plantation owned by Reuben Chapman, an absentee landlord who served in the U.S. House of Representatives and as governor of Alabama. Young married a woman named Glover and worked as a foreign labor laborer. He lived his entire life near the plantation in Livingston, Alabama, and died in 1946. Excuse me, 1943, and that's George Chapman Young. Okay. And, and, and this is Felix Haywood, who describes the end of the Civil War. And he said, soldiers all of a sudden were everywhere, coming in bunches, crossing and walking and riding. Everyone was singing. We were all walking. Uh, we were all walking on the golden clouds. Hallelujah. Everybody went wild. We all felt like heroes, and nobody was mad at us about the way uh, w had mad had made us that way, but ourselves. We were free, just like that. We were free. Nobody took our homes away, but right off, colored folks started on the move. They seemed to want to get closer to freedom, so they know what it was like—a place or a setting. Wow. There the are words are so beautiful, so poetic. Yes. Oh my God! And just the wisdom with it, and how the they wisdom. It's it's just amazing. This is a great read for for anybody, any American. I think this is absolutely. It's for all Americans to really understand and give humanity to the enslaved Africans, because um, without them, um, this country wouldn't be the country that it is today. Um, I also want to go in and say I really agree with um, analysis that were given to the book. One of the writers write that there is such power in these pages. These photos and testimony bear witness and do so with such vigor and eloquence. What an extraordinary book. That was Alec Kitowitz, author of There Are No Children Here in American Summer. And it's just everything the river above the river above brings to life stories and reminiscences of enslaved Africans through a tapestry of oral history testimonies and rarely por published portraits. Readers seeking to grasp the deep humanity of enslaved people look no further, and that is true. Look no further than the river of blood. But do you have anything else to add? And you can get the book on the docbookshop uh, dot com, and I will always say, you know, get the book at whatever uh, platform you're comfortable with. I say the docbookshop dot com because the show is sponsored by the doc bookshop. But you can go to your website. What's your website? Well, uh, it's City Files Press. Is the name of the website city city c i t y f i l e s press dot com? But I think the doc bookstore is the place to get it. <laughs> Thank you so much. We will ship. <laughs> we will ship. Um, I did not get to take questions this go around, but please, if you have any questions, is there a way they can email you or? 
Sure. Uh, my email is just my name, which is Richard Cahan. It's spelled C-A-H-A-N at uh, gmail.com. So anyone who has questions can certainly do that. And this is his book, River of Blood and American, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It. Um, real quick, can you tell them about some of your other books that you have available? Um, sure. What we do is we, we usually write books that are based on photo collections. So like this collection, we did a book about the uh, incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. And that book's called Un-American. And we recently uh, did a book about, uh, you mentioned Ernest Withers, who was a great Memphis photographer who documented the African-American community in Memphis in the 40s and the 50s. But more than that, he was an amazing civil rights photographer who started uh, with the Emmett Till trial in 1955 and continued throughout his career and also documented, um, it's like, it's, it's, it's amazing. He documented Negro League Baseball and the birth of rhythm and blues, and we're really proud of that that book also. Okay, so if you go to your website, the, you're going to get a plethora of information. Again, thank you for tuning in to Doc Power Hour. Richard Cahan, thank you for calling in today and just giving our listening audience a little bit more to cherish um, Black History Month. We really appreciate it. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> Thank you. On today. It's been great. And uh, there's a chance I might come to Texas in the in the summer. And if I do, I'm calling you and oh, I'm coming to your book. Uh, call me beforehand. Let me tell you, we'll put you on that calendar. That calendar is a busy, busy bee. But we will definitely make room for you because we this work is tremendous. And thank um, you. I hope thank, you. thank you. And if you come across a Craddock photo, please share I with me. <laughs> I, I absolutely will. I'm on the lookout. Okay. Thank you very much. So you were listening to Richard Cahan uh, um, as he talked about his book, River of, Blood, River of Blood. Again, we thank you for tuning in to Doc Power Hour. This show is sponsored by and supported by The Doc Bookshop. The Doc Bookshop, www.thedocbookshop. You can also reach out to the bookstore if you have any questions or concerns. That number is 817 457 5700. That's 817 457 5700. Or you can also send an email that is info at thedocbookshop.com, your place for inspiration, information, and entertainment. Thank you for tuning in to Doc Power Hour.